Welcome back to Women of AV Poly. I'm your host, Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. And I'm her consistently cranky co-host, <laughs> Kathleen Cash Me Outside How About Dad Smith. <laughs> and today we have two guests. We're Inside joke. Yeah. <laughs> Except not because I put it on Twitter. But <laughs> this is true. <laughs> um, we've got two guests that we were super excited to have with us. It's actually been really hard to keep quiet about this all week long <laughs> because I knew that it was coming. So we've got Melanie Thomas from the University of Calgary. Welcome, at Melanie. Thanks for having me on. I'm always happy to join you good folks to talk about what's coming and going in Alberta politics. <laughs> and we also have from the University of Alberta, Lise Gotell. Welcome, Lise. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay, let's get right into this. <laughs> yes, I am super excited. So, here we go. Yeah, here we go. Um so we're going to start with the Twitter explosion last week that began with, actually, it probably began before this, but let's let's go from my version first, and everyone else can add their vantage point. <laughs> so what, what I saw was a response from Ryan Jesperson on, uh, on his show, and, and originally I was kind of like, yeah. I do that too, right? I book my guests and I'm going to book whoever I want to bring on and, and because I want to hear what they have to say. And yeah, anyways, <laughs> then it just kind of all went boom. Um, and let's talk about, uh, because one of the things that that really worried me after it went boom was how do we know that there is another topic underneath something that needs to be discussed so that's where we're starting with that like I said feel free to come in with your own vantage point <laughs> and uh and fix that all uh, give us the 360 version <laughs> so I actually think that interpretation is a really good summary of what I saw because I know my reactions were um less about uh, uh like the Ryan Jesperson podcast and more about my colleagues at the university who refuse to see, um, pardon my language, but like regular systemic shit that their colleagues have to deal with um, that they don't. And so I know for me, what got me really grumpy was that there's stuff that happened earlier in the week and I won't get into it, but um, International Women's Day is annoying. And so I don't know if Lee's had this, but I had like, and I shouldn't say International Women's Day shouldn't be annoying. Like, I know what we have and all that stuff, but like the university only wants to celebrate women's scholarship when it's that day, right? And we get siloed into that. So we're not like excellent researchers. We just happen to like be top of mind for like the special moment as opposed to like um, being seen as like for our excellence, like some of our colleagues get to be seen like kind of routinely as a matter of privilege. Right. Um, and I mean, we can, of course, somebody might be like, Oh, the white ladies are talking about, um, this again. And like, in terms of like gender, like white women have like as an equity seeking group done better at the university. than I think, uh, and like universities in general than, than any other kind of groups. And we have done things like a more robust black history month and like the university of Calgary is doing some interesting stuff with the new vice provost EDI. But the thing that I find like could you all just start to pay a bit more attention to this please is the fact that like my department colleagues or like the people who like work we work with like day in and day out like we can tell them like the stuff that happens so I can tell them about the time that I had a co-authored publication come out and was deluged under like violent pornography for like for a period of time and it rendered my institutional email um unusable because it would like would not stop it was something that was directed at my co-author but because I had co-authored with her and it was public this is what happened it was I was very junior it was like the first year that I was on the job uh and for people to even like ask questions about like where the biases or to make assumptions that like, oh, these places must be biased against conservatives because like not everybody agrees with them anymore. Like this is part of me where I'm just kind of like, they're like, if you want to look for problems, there's a way to do it that we should be doing as scholars because of how we actually approach like the way that we look at the world for patterns or whatever. And like the 
unwillingness to actually like expand the question or use a different lens or like the desire to deliberately restrict it to such narrow terms to literally take other questions completely off the table by like using the begging the question fallacy to just assume that they're not there right like that this keeps happening it just happened to be like I happened to be primed for it and so when it hit I was like mm-hmm. no <laughs> no I am sick of this and this is why my uh, first critique about this was, I don't think that a panel of men is going to be well-placed to like get at exactly why this question is wrong, right? Yeah. Particularly, or like a panel of, and I would go so far as to say a panel of my colleagues, regardless of their sociodemographics, if they refuse to use like a lens towards equity and justice, like that's the lens that you need to use. And when I see a bunch of folks who like, are not casting aspersions on my colleagues that were actually on the panel, but it's just more like, you know, when my experience talking to people about stuff uh apart from this at work about things is when there's just like people like I can say let me tell you about the violence that I've encountered as a result of doing my job and they ignore it round after round after round I'm done I'm fed up and so so this like it feels a bit salty and I can imagine some listeners being like she shouldn't write it off so much that way but part of me is like if your biggest problem is that fewer people agree with you than they did in the past and that somebody actually calls you out and your racist sexist bullshit every now and then and like there might be an expectation of accountability I don't feel bad for you this isn't a problem this isn't bias this is actually like like deal with my like pornography filled inbox for like a day and like see or like have the have the like fight or flight response I get when I get um the email notification that I've got some voicemail that's on my office phone because literally the only people who use my office voicemail are people who want to like say violent awful things to me right and I get it to my inbox to be able to be like to give something to the police if I actually think it's something that they're going to act on which is nil but still like just for the possibility like part of me wants to be like talk about that before we talk about like do enough people agree with you or like I can't like make a joke about sexual harassment anymore or I can't actually sexually harass my students anymore or like I don't get to to be you dude yeah or I can't (laughs) automatically get my like intellectual priorities at like the top of the list just because I determine them to be there at the top of the list like part of me is just like you know nobody's forcing it like it I'm literally in full rant mode because it's still quite close to the surface clearly but like it's one of these things those are great points you're bringing up though though that's It's Mm -hmm. not just about this surface conversation that we're having and you're explaining it like that. Now it's clicked with me, right? Okay, so this is why the question was posed incorrectly. (laughs) Because initially, I looked at it more from a a media and promotions and, and PR sort of position where, well, that's the question you ask in media because that's the question everyone will tune into. If you get a little bit more nuanced with the question, it might promote a better conversation, but you also might be losing half your audience. So initially I I took the position of, okay, this is media, this is PR, this is promotions, this is how we do it. But when you explain it to me that way, like this is a a surface question. This is a shallow question. It's a superficial question that cannot even begin to address what is really happening, which is the exact opposite of what the question suggests is happening. So that clicks. So I think it's fine to ask the question that way, but I think that had Ryan asked Melanie to be on the panel, it would have been a very different conversation. So You know, this study is pointing to anti-conservative bias in the humanities and social sciences, where more than 50% of professors are women and more than 60% of students are women. So not to have a, uh, a woman's perspective on this when we are very likely to have experienced bullying and harassment for being progressive, Mm -hmm. um, I think was, was a problem. And it just, uh, it, I looked at that and I thought, and and also I got to say, you know, my, my own perspective, I'm tired of uh, listening to all male panels on Alberta politics. Right. And, and it would have been an entirely different conversation had Melanie or I, or um, Linda Smith or, or some other woman who has had that experience been on the panel. So 
Um, and, you know, all I said was, uh, you can do better than this mantle, Ryan. That's all I said. That's all. I didn't say you shouldn't have this panel or ask the question. So although um, his, his rant certainly uh, seemed to elude that, that that's what I had done. And I think too, there was, there were two things that he was responding to at that point in time. And it could be like, when I put together, I put together a, uh, a recap of AB Ledge in the week in gifts, and mm. it was just like the best way to do it. I'm still so laughing it over it. Was, I yeah. knew as soon as I went through that, that whole gift thread, I'm like, I'm cash me outside girl, aren't I, yeah. Deirdre? You did that about me, didn't you? <laughs> you yeah. didn't even have to tag me. I knew it. But it just, it seemed to me when I was like, when I was putting it together, it seemed to me like there was a, there was this buildup that was coming and it, it was let out right there. And I mean, obviously Jesperson was getting some stuff from somewhere else too. I hadn't seen any of that, that whole pod, podcast wars thing. I still really haven't caught up yeah, uh, cause I didn't see any of it. <laughs> yeah. But, it wasn't a podcast wars. So I mean, they can no. call it that, but it had nothing to do with podcasts or different podcast hosts. It had to do with um I'll just sum it up this way. I've been on Twitter now for 11 years. It's 11 years this month, which is a long time. (laughs) I've spent a lot of time there. And the Alberta Ledge feed is a, a unique experience for users because we are like a little family in there. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, uh, long timers, there's some new people. There's, uh, there's definitely, um, I would say, more more progressives than conservatives in that feed. That's and pretty we, fair. Yeah, we generally <laughs> all agree. But like well, any family, there are <laughs> moments not, of dysfunction. I wouldn't, I wouldn't include the press secretaries and the issues managers yeah, no, within the family. No, no. Sorry. no, but I think they, they mostly get ignored now anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. But like any family, there are moments of dysfunction. And this this dysfunction in the Alberta Ledge Twitter family has been growing for some time. There has been some very hostile, demeaning subtweeting. There's been a lot of attacking other people to look good, but not doing a lot of good, as the old saying goes. There's been people who were tired of what they saw as being harassed by those on the left who are ready to pounce at every moment. It had been building and building and building. And I think what happened on Thursday of last week, it wasn't, it wasn't just about Ryan Jesperson's mantle. It wasn't just about the uh, brochalist boys deciding that they had to attack him for no good reason when they were having an all male panel too. His mantle sucks. Come listen to ours. It wasn't any of that. It was that the tension's been building for quite a while. And I think that whole situation with with Jesperson, it it just was, um, what do you call that? The tipping point? Yeah. Yeah. It was the tipping point and people reacted. There was another version of this that happened a few weeks ago with a particular article that ran in the scroll. And so I think part of this is the idea that like, um, I think there's a bigger media narrative to be crafted about this, about what happens when um, journalism as a profession gets hollowed out. And then there's a lot of more pop-up and like informal sorts of things, but this particular piece. um, That's a good point referred to uh, like Rachel Notley as the crazy ex-girlfriend that you decide at afterwards that like um, is maybe just not so bad. And so like, I, re- I, me? like I really rejected, I really like reacted negatively to the, that use of a, as a quippy frame, but it was also like in the moment where we've got like um, the coal policy coming forward with like no consultation and you've got like contention with public sector, workers you've got this jobs narrative but not if they're public sector jobs or that public sector jobs are like 
overly um, paid when they're all women. And if you actually look at this yeah. in the context of like gender gaps in pay, you would really be hard pressed to say that women in Alberta earn too much because we've got one of the most acute or we have yeah. historically had one of the most acute no, we, gender gaps in pay. We still do, and it's bigger yeah. now than it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so the thing that gets me is just this kind of like a, like I didn't really agree that it was the moment that we needed to have a conversation about whether or not Rachel Notley was sufficiently left. Like I was like, I guess you could write that, but I don't find it particularly interesting. But if you are going to, could you not use like a really gross sexist trope? And with that, like the brochalists like came from me being like, you don't think like how, and I think it was a lot of kind of like they, how dare you be so partisan and waking my finger at like, the, it was the metaphorical finger way being like, um, I don't know how much of it was gender affinity or, or like assumptions of gender affinity and therefore you're going to get protection for this um, or assumptions of partisanship. Um, I will go on the record as a scholar saying I have looked at Hansard uh, in Alberta and noted like just the number of times even the word women appears in legislative debate in Alberta uh, before Rachel Notley and Lori Blakeman were elected in 2008. Um, the only time it really got said in the entire previous legislative session, um, the entire legislature, like the entire section before that was when people refer to men and women in uniform. And so part of me wants to be like, listen, if we're going to be talking about like actual policy chops and we, we should talk about how like the presence of women period changes like the words that get used and like women actually come up as a word that gets used when like, you've got like the kind of minded people that come into that. Mm -hmm. um, this very much changed with respect to uh, the Notley government. And so the part that gets me is just this, like, if you're going to use a gross sexist trope um, to then turn around and frame an article about how like this woman led government wasn't good enough and you're not going to talk about things like cutting child poverty in half um during yeah. a recession if you're not going to talk about equity policies if you're not going to talk about the language that actually gets used and part of me is like you could have interviewed me for that like I actually did the work with Hansard so that you didn't have to like for me like I was approaching this very much as a gender and politics scholar and the blowback that I got including like some violent stuff that my mom saw of all people nobody wants like so as an aside my favorite like the only easter egg like numbered account um I don't mind seeing is the one that I know is associated with my mother. Like that's the only time I'm like, Oh, that's mom. She looks like a bot, but she's not. That's great. For me, it's, um, it's my cousin. Yeah, yeah. I, she's the only one yeah. that's like an egg account. Although yeah. now I think it's just a silhouette yeah. and she'll yeah. like something. And I immediately think, Oh great. I've got a troll. And then I look, I'm like, Oh no, it's, oh, no, it's her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the, yeah. So the, I think this is part and parcel of a similar kind of thing where it's a devaluing there's like assumptions are made to infer motive when certain narratives come forward. And the one that I'm experiencing is one where um, women are uh, assume like the assumption I felt like devalued my credentials and by um, like the actual peer-reviewed scholarship that went into informing my particular view. And like, I don't feel like I need to rehash that part. Like, and I don't want this to be like an appeal to authority fallacy, but part of me is like, like I wrote it. Like, so don't assume <laughs> that uh, like, I'm just being a partisan hack because I'm yeah. not. Um, yeah. So, so having that kind of swift partisan response and then with my university colleagues also being kind of like, Hey, I'm just not going to listen to your experience, nor am I going to read your scholarship kind of thing. Like all of this hits the same nerve. Um, and like part of it also, like what part of the nerve that it hits is it's like, I know that this is sexist. I know that people are really good at putting a, um, shiny veneer to like try to hide the fact that it's sexist because they know better than to like explicitly say it for the most part some folks don't um some folks own it in which case part of me is like at least you're honest it's gross but it's honest um but the like all the idea of like um the critiques got to be right or you're a problem with this and and right like correct um yeah in some of the circles here it looks a particular kind of way and if you deviate from that um we like we saw it and like I think both instances the blowback coming um that comes from I think I I would just go so far as to say it it comes from a, a I don't know if it would be anti-intellectual but it comes from a place where they like women's credentials and experience um aren't valued and the thing is if they're not listening to the white 
ladies, they're sure as shit not going to be listening to the indigenous colleagues. They're not going to be listening to the black colleagues. They're not going to be listening to any other racialized colleagues, any of those other perspectives. Like that's just going to be, and and like we can do better than that. And I think asking for better is, um, shouldn't be met with such hostility, to be honest. See, I'm glad you, I'm glad that you, um, that you put the time into explaining that so clearly because now I get it. (laughs) I didn't get it so much last week. And that's because I was more focused on what I saw as some just hysterical level hypocrisy happening. And that Mm -hmm. became my focus. But, and this is why maybe Ryan should have had some women on that panel. (laughs) Because when, when you're explaining it in terms of your experience, your firsthand experience, in the academic world and why that question messes everything up that helps someone like me get it too. It's not just about men getting it. A woman like me, who's kind of, well, what are we freaking out about now? I get it. So thank you for that. Anytime. I'm always happy to rest. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we come from a discipline, political science that, um, at least when I was a, a, a grad student and a young scholar was pretty male dominated. So I, I viscerally react <laughs> to mantles. And I think um, most academic women do so. And that's understandable. Yeah. When I, when we hear about, okay, this is the part you don't see. This is what's, mm-hmm. what is below the surface that the general public doesn't know about that makes the reaction and it's not that you, that anyone's reaction needs to be validated <laughs> but now i understand it more clearly that you know if you're in an environment where you're dealing with this every single day all day long to then see it in another arena is it's going to be that tipping point that we talked about right like when is enough enough and I think for me, like getting back to the, like the original question that seemed to kick this all off, like our campus is biased against conservatives. The, uh, I don't object to that question except for the, uh, and this very well could be like the difference between somebody who teaches students to write questions that can actually get them to produce a good paper at the end of it versus like what makes for a good panel. Uh, Cause for me, it's just like, well, every yes, no question is like going to be crap. <laughs> comes to like being generative right and so I was like well part of me and I think this might offend some folks but I'm going to say it anyway part of me thinks that the question is asked um, as a political power move to try to shore up places in the university um, that where people feel like a status threat to the idea that um, uh, powerful spaces should be theirs and should continue to be theirs and there's this threat that like other people might encroach on the space or like be getting accolades or being seen as legitimate um, or core to the function of the institution as opposed to just kind of like, yeah, yeah. or as opposed to like a nice add-on, right? Like, so because I am also a political scientist, I'll say when I was on the job market, this is like less than a, like almost a decade ago, but like not quite a decade ago. Um, So I am a Canadian politics generalist. My other main field was comparative politics. My research questions lead me to like questions that usually deal with equity, but like I'm very much trained as a generalist. Uh, And I remember, being told by a department that was making multiple hires uh, that somebody like me would have been a nice to have, but they really needed somebody who could teach federalism. And I was like, I don't know, man, I, pumped. I, I, I can do I that. I taught federalism. Yeah. Yep. Just last year at the drop of a hat, I did a brand new course on like regionalism, including like the structures of federalism that inform it. And is this the right place to look for it? Things along those lines. So, so part of this is this idea of like, who's like, who's essential, who's Mm -hmm. core uh, and who's nice to have. Um, And I think like, so I, I balk at the question, question for that reason, where it's like a um, people who are not the old canon uh, and I like this is where I've gotten into quote unquote trouble framing it this way, but like the the universities are dominated by like um, white folks who are mostly men of a certain yes. age, 
And so like, and to be honest, like those of us who are coming up who have uh, multiple decades of like work um, to do in the institution yet, we kind of like to be able to decide what we think is core now without actually having that kind of conversation, like actually reflecting where our fields are moving, um, have the backlash associated with that as somehow we're being biased against a particular ideological group when we're actually just reflecting where like knowledge is moving, right? Like I'm actually really glad I wasn't on that panel because as a survey researcher, I would have looked at that survey at least. I don't know if you got it. I didn't. I don't know anybody who got it. The response rate was terrible and part of it's yeah. like if your sample is that shitty it's like like you can't draw conclusions 280 people responded from canada you can't yeah. no, no. like and it was yeah. self-selected <laughs> like yeah. not methodologically sound not a peer-reviewed study i mean there's all kinds yeah. of no but like that- also like i'm pretty sure if i had gotten it i would have remembered it Right. And like, so if it didn't come across my desk and if I wasn't part of the sample and no one I know was part yeah, of the no, sample, no, then no, like, I, yeah, it's no. absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, so I like, I look at that question. I look at the study that's like motivating the question being like, this is a like rhetorical kind of like political sort of thing. This is about ma- maintaining like existing power structures in part just because like people are objecting to our existence and the fact that they might actually have to pay attention to what. Yeah folk outside of a certain like very small circle have to say about stuff and like that's what I object to as well I mean I would object to the same thing in politics though too like I think one of the things about Alberta that was really interesting come 2015 is that you had a party platform that actually explicitly mentioned equity seeking and equity deserving groups Um, and I find it really interesting how many of those groups are now excluded from the jobs 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 narrative like that 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 dichotomy I find really striking Yeah. And I think that we should explicitly talk about that and like yeah. ask political the, leaders the who are doing recovery. that. Yeah. And like ask political leaders who are doing that, like why they're doing it and to hold them accountable for that. I don't think that's biased. because I Melanie, think, the, the yeah. reason why is because um, yeah. there's a huge gender gap <laughs> right now and uh, the UCP are no, they can't recover that ground. I right. think no, they I know. know it's lost to them. So why? Why even bother? But oh, no, I know, I know I why they're doing that. I want to know yeah. why people aren't actually aren't asking them to it. be explicit yeah. about why they're doing it, right? Well, yeah. I and mean, I think, think that's a key part of political accountability. Maybe yeah. part of the problem is that the NDP still isn't doing so great with women either. Like when you look at the recent polling, I would have expected the NDP, when it comes to the the demographic breakdown, to be experiencing huge success with women right now especially since what we're seeing the UCP do and we've addressed it many times on this podcast is download the burden of this pandemic onto the backs of women Mm -hmm. across the board it is women who are are carrying the burden of this pandemic and women know that so I would have expected to see them much further back with women they, but they're not. They, We're they seeing are, the NDP at like forty six percent with women. So, so, but the thing you no, have but, to take into account is who, like, women at this stage. I would imagine, especially if they're like super stressed out from the pandemic, are going to say, "I don't know and I don't care," and my vote intention uh, is not top of mind. And so, it's, like before, it's, it's with I, young people though that you see the hugest gender yeah. gap. So it's the yeah. twenty to thirty four uh, uh, yeah. year old. Uh, and there, 62% of, of women are uh, supporting the NDP and only 20-some percent of men. And and it's because mm-hmm. those are the, you know, the young women who are uh, being forced out of the labor market right now to care for children in the you yes. know, context of Deirdre uh, was talking about homeschooling her son before we started. Um, and they're the women who've been forced out because their uh, like retail sector jobs, you know, have ended um, uh, or, or who can't jo- get jobs at all. And, you know, we've got we've got a jobs, 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 uh, uh, recovery agenda that is entirely focused on the male dominant dominated sectors of the economy. I mean, it's going to have an impact upon um, economic recovery. I mean, it's it's going yeah. to affect the ability of the Alberta economy to recover, and and that it's so it's just bad economics. It's bad public policy, and we, we need to be talking about this. Well, yeah, and I feel and like this even... this government especially treats women as um, accessories. 
we are accessories to our men. We are accessories in the job force. I, I don't think yeah. this government recognizes us as vital to an economic recovery. And that's we're, why they don't mention us. That We're nice and, to have, but we're not core. Like I keep coming well, back to the same problem, right? Like it, it, yeah. it's a nice addition. Like if, if we, if we could only, and I just like, think it was a narrative in like 2019 where people like, I, rem- I read the comments on things because I think it tells me where folks are at. And for people to say, um, I don't care about all of these equity issues. I just want the money back. It's literally saying, I don't actually care about somebody else's humanity. Uh, Mm -hmm. I just want the money back. And again, I'm probably like lighting up some people in the audience. And part of me is just like, you know, but like you can't, that's a reasonable interpretation of this, right? Mm -hmm. Looking at young women too, if you've got somebody who's training um, to be a nurse or a teacher or a new graduate, and they are grinding it out on casual or on a sub list. And the idea that, um, in the midst of a pandemic where uh, healthcare and education have been turned completely upside down, the idea that that work is not valued and the idea that that work is seen to be like a drain in public sources and the idea that like that kind of work um, is seen to be overpaid or that people should be prepared to do it for a lot less. Like, I think it fundamentally misunderstands that kind of labor. Uh, And so like, I can see, like, in addition to like, I also think that like, if you're going to be looking at the don't know responses, that's going to like structure, like what decided voters look like in any given poll. But I can also see why that gender gap is so like a 50 some odd percentage point gap um, across gender preferences for any age cohort should make everybody stagger and stop in their tracks and that we can come up with such a clear like elite driven narrative for why that gap exists i think it would be fair like again somebody like could reasonably rationally look at that evidence and say women feel like they're under attack and they're not wrong particularly if they're associated with like healthcare, particularly if they're associated with any form of education from kindergarten through post-secondary in like a multitude of roles. Uh, And particularly because like the government of the day seems to think that not only are their jobs expendable, um, but when they do have them, they're making too much money, even though objectively we can point out that they're not, right? It it seems to be an ongoing thing with this government too, that that they think uh, we're all married. And as long as they get our husbands some nice oil, oil rig jobs, as long as those jobs come back, all the women will be happy. And I consistently get frustrated with that because it makes us um, accessories to our husbands, to our, our partners, and it does nothing for us on a go forward basis it's still, it's still keeping the boot on our neck, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Uh, Sure, the money might be there, but he's the one making the money. And we live in a society that's never going to let you forget that (laughs) when you're a woman, right? So when I see a government that's just, oh, we'll, we'll just make sure your husbands have good paying jobs. And that really seems to be the approach of, of this government. And that's why I'm so concerned that it's actually setting us further back, not just the pandemic, but this government's answer to the pandemic and to how it's affected women on the whole is, is so backwards that it's, it's literally dragging women backwards, not figuratively, (laughs) but we are literally going backwards. Yeah. To the night. All the way to the 1950s, because yes. that is the image of the uh, perfect society that um, our, our government seems to want to recreate. So, And if folks listening, again, balk at that, I always like to think like where the strong resistance to what we're saying is going to come from. I, there is stats can data that shows that in Alberta, women's labor force position um, is at right now back about as far as 1983. Yeah. Yeah. And if we, if we push that back and I think structurally, like the only reason why it's not backslid further is because um, like we actually wouldn't be able to function if we didn't have like, if women were in the labor market, like they were in the fifties, like, I actually think that maybe structurally, if you're looking at like numbers of participation, like we might not be able to go that low, but I feel like we're hitting the floor and that there isn't an acknowledgement of that as a problem um, is, is really quite like concerning from like a, how are we actually going to get out of this kind of perspective? But also I think really like 
distressing in terms of like, you're supposed to be representing all of us, right? But, but um, because to this government, it isn't a problem. This isn't a problem no. to this government. And I, I try to keep that in mind when I'm, when I'm frustrated with them and, and I'm thinking, well, why doesn't our government get what this is doing to women? They get it. Oh, absolutely. They're perfectly yeah. fine with it. And I, I guess that's, these are the, the issues that I'm hoping we can focus on more. You know, like I'm not so I'm not so concerned with the the little skirmishes because I think the little skirmishes act as distractions to the shit that is really hurting women in this province, and to the fact that it's not it, it it's not confined to just conservatism. <laughs> like there's a lot of this to go around. Yeah. And See, is, I'm just kind of yeah. tired of parties hijacking my womanhood for their their rhetoric without ever doing anything to really fix the bigger issues. So this is where I find like I, I want to say that some of it is just straight up sexism, but this is so where I where I land on thinking it, it can't just be that. Um or maybe it, like it's gotta be it's gotta be multifaceted, is this idea that um if we really just wanted to make this about the money, you can make a really compelling argument for wealth generation that focuses um, really, like really heavily keys in to, you know, women's work, women's labor, all of the evidence about like uh, accessible, affordable, universal childcare means that like, if like the argument that comes down at the end of it is that if you want to like build wealth and prosperity, you've got to do that. Like it's like, it's, it's just like, it's so overwhelmingly supported by evidence that it's not even an interesting statement to make anymore. So then the, the interesting question is, so why aren't folks doing it then? Like, what is it? And is it because there's a perception that we, like women aren't required as like base supporters and voters to be able to get somebody to win government? Part of me is like, maybe, but then like, don't we all want to be loaded though? Like, and so I keep coming back to like the, yeah, but don't you want Like, this is somebody who wanted to make a class analysis of this would like just read me a new one about this. But like, in terms of the rhetoric, part of me is like, yeah, but isn't this just like, think about the money. Like, why are you leaving the money on the table? And I, this is the one thing where I really struggle. Um, if we're, again, we're focusing on the current iteration of the Alberta provincial government, like why, if money is so much of like an animating issue, um, money from the federal government, um, money that's not no longer coming into provincial coffers because of oil and gas, um, like the fraught conversations that we might need to have to generate money um, to replace the hole that oil and gas has left in the provincial budget. Um, like why we would be leaving money on the table. Like it's irrational. I'm, I'm deliberately using the language of rational choice and like economic theory to be like, this is an irrational set of outcomes. So what explains like that outcome that doesn't otherwise doesn't make sense. Um, I think it has a lot to do with particular forms of identity um, and that identity not just ignores women but I think it gets to this idea that it's openly hostile to them. Um, but it also like to get back to like the animating question for all of this too, it's like a lot of the approach just like I think it's very narrow and it deliberately like blinders off um, even asking a question that could open up all of these other policy sorts of things so it's just kind of like the instead of like you know uh, what are we going to do like how can we support oil and gas it could be more like there might be an energy transition and how can we like continue to be an energy leader how can we generate like wealth and prosperity for everyone um, why wouldn't we include everyone in our definition of everyone? <laughs> like, these are the yeah. kinds of questions I keep, keep landing on. Uh, and the only explanation that I have, at least from like an individual level, trying to explain like why voters behave the way that they do, why activists would behave the way that they do, is that it really is just an us versus them mentality. And so us is defined by like, if you're good Albertan, you're always angry at the federal government. If you're good Albertan, <laughs> You forcefully identify with oil and gas. If you're a good Albertan, um, you won't want to get quote unquote distracted by questions of equity. Um, if you're a good Albertan, um, you don't need to access things like the healthcare system. And like a good Albertan, you're not going to be an intellectual either, um, which is why it's okay to like gut education and healthcare and post-secondary and universities in particular. Now I would point out that like 
as a good Albertan, quote unquote, um, like I grew up dryland brain farm, and we just kind of always knew that the university was our way out of a dying industry that nobody was helping transition. So I've got a lot of sympathy for like an industry that looks like it's heading for a really hard transition, and there don't seem doesn't seem to be the leadership to like do something to help that process out. And the longer we wait on that, the worse it's going to get. So like as somebody who had to transition out of a community that's like dead now without any kind of government support, part of me is like, could we not do that, please? But like the other thing is that I know what we needed as individuals to like transition out and land well. Uh, And it was the stuff that's getting like exceptionally brutally cut. And that's things like universities and the cuts to universities there. uh, Yeah. Even if people think that they're biased against conservatives which they're not but even if they did think that the cuts are like so draconian and so awful to the institutions themselves and they like do nothing to affect the government's overall fiscal position like the that that it's just so purely driven by something that feels very punitive as opposed to like an actual it feels retaliatory yeah it feels entirely retaliatory it feels vengeful it feels personal yeah it's but got for nothing what? to do i don't know with, like, what did we do? Benefit. yeah no because <laughs> it's not about us i think it's about yeah. a, a premier who was uh expelled from two different schools and who has a, a real grudge against post-secondary institutions i mean i have and a because hypothesis his, about the his base doesn't care right especially ones that uh you know have uh aspirations to be within you know, the top universities in the world, you know, so we have excellent universities in this province. And we are the ones who are being singled out for the the most brutal cuts. And, you know, the uh, advanced education minister said yesterday, uh, that, uh, well, you know, uh, these cuts are, are largely about trimming administrative fat. And, and like, in my institution, it 1200 people will be fired these are student advisors these mm-hmm. are people in the registrar's office they're the the ones who are scheduling classes they're you know the people who keep the classrooms clean and and heated and maintained and to think that those things are not going to have an impact somehow on on the quality of education and research that we do is just ridiculous yeah. like, I, the, I, the cuts aren't coming to anybody who's sunshine this is the thing that gets me like the same argument gets made for yeah. health services and i think this argument of like oh we just need to trim administration is one that is like a fallacy and a lie that people tell themselves to make them think that there's actually not going to be any kind of material harm that comes from the cuts and like you can look at alberta health services and see that they are like the amount of money they spend on administration is like low compared to um, uh, compared to uh, any other like comparable institution in another province. With universities, the comparison is harder to get. And I mean, I don't want to defend my institution for like the creep towards centralizing everything with a central leadership team. Like I, I think um, some of the most yes. vocal critics of that are going to be the people who are uh, the one tasked yep. with dealing with the cuts now. And I think a lot of that central stuff gets... Um, Um, gets insulated but we also know looking at universities too that like uh through legislation that i think is unconstitutional the government is telling like public sector employers like universities like alberta health services things along those lines to just get stuff in collective agreements that uh is like indefensible uh but with also actually like being prepared to take on the public accountability of telling Albertans what they're telling institutions to do. Uh, And so in that sense, part of me is like, you know, if you want to have an agenda and if you want to be unapologetic about it, like put your name to it and shine a light on it. Right. Lise, I I wanted to ask you, how much do you think what we're seeing uh, with the attack on post-secondary education and the focus on trades, there is such a push for, for trades right now. How much of that do you think yet again falls into the category of more and more women are going to post-secondary education and trades are still primarily male-dominated? I think that's so, entirely what's going on. I really do. And, you know, there's such an incredible emphasis on the trades. I mean, if you if you look at Dimitrios Nicolaitis' 
Twitter account. I mean, half the time he's tweeting about about the trades and he does tweet about women in, in the trades. And, you know, the Alberta government um, established, I think it was in the 1970s, uh, uh, an award called the Persons Case Scholarship. And that scholarship was an endowed scholarship in, in the Heritage Fund. And its mandate was to um, uh, to provide funding for students uh, studying in an area where their gender was underrepresented. It used to be exclusively uh, for women, but they they got broadened out. I think it actually got broadened out under the NDP. I sat on that scholarship committee for for years, and you know, so I I know that. A substantial number of those awards went to women in the trades, went to women in STEM. But the government tried to eliminate that scholarship last year and replace it with dedicated funding for women in STEM and women in the trades and uh, like to eliminate funding for, uh, you know, women and other genders who were in fields where their gender was underrepresented. Also, the scholarship... um, had another stream uh, that funded students who worked for gender equality. And I think in particular, they wanted to get rid of that. So anyway, it was interesting. Um, They eliminated it in the fall. I drew some attention to it. Uh, Michelle Belfontaine from CBC wrote an article about it. And they have reinstated it. And I don't think it had anything to do with the criticisms. I actually think, which was something that I asked them, that they couldn't do it. I think that, you know, the scholarship was an endowed scholarship. I don't think they could get rid of it, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's all about that. I mean, you know, so they've, they've, I'm all for, if, you know, like I, I, I support women doing whatever kind of uh, career they, they want to engage in. And, and, you know, I, women in the trades is great, but, you know, there was a study released just this week that showed that the, the wage gap, for women in the trades is actually incredibly wide. Like it's like, yeah. you know, women make 50% of what men make in the trades. Um, so that's not a panacea here. And also if you, if you think about the kind of, the kind of work that, um, you know, I think that someone like Nicolatis imagines women being able to, to do if they get an apprenticeship, you know, becoming a heavy equipment operator, that's a pretty hard job for someone especially if they have responsibility for children because oftentimes it's the kind of job where you have to fly in you know and spend like a couple of weeks and then fly out like there's there's just a lack of understanding of uh yeah and we need we need we need lawyers we need professors we need teachers we need nurses we need accountants we don't you know, we can't survive as a society if we're all just employed in the trades, right? And the thing is, too, that we're not talking about this is that if you want people to move into a profession like that, um, the conditions need to be such that it's appealing for them. And the thing that I keep thinking about is um, if I were a woman, would I want to be on 24 hour? Well, I am a woman, but like, would I want to be on 24 hour <laughs> call um, for uh, an emergency trade service? Like, yeah. do I think I would be safe going in alone to like, whatever home do I think I would be safe going into um any kind of call do I think I would be safe going into a fly-in camp and I think the answer that that's I, I doesn't, an important one do I think it, I'd be safe going into a fly-in camp when I mean, we already yeah. know and, what women in the areas of those camp yeah. have and dealt with for somebody like not all men's it this is where the like corresponding like yeah. like high levels of frustration and anger coming out of the United Kingdom are relevant where um just because like most people, most men wouldn't necessarily threaten women's safety doesn't mean that there isn't a risk, right? Um, and that some someone can do everything right and still end up with an absolute absolutely catastrophic outcome. And so for me, part of it's just like, if you actually want women to take up the trades in much larger numbers than they're doing, explain to me why they're earning so much less. And I bet it's because they're not doing a lot of the after hour calls. I bet it's because they're not feeling comfortable going into um, the positions where they know that they could build the maximum amount of overtime because like, this is what 
students who have like seen the writing on the wall in like oil and gas have said when they come back into our classrooms to transition out to a more stable um, kind of employment. Um, Cause they're just like, yeah, it was either all or nothing. And like in a certain context where I could bill like however many hours I could fit in at $300 an hour in terms of overtime, the context they're describing is one where I think many women. And I also think like people of color would not necessarily feel super safe. And again, yeah. as I'm imagining people screaming at me, <laughs> listening to this part of it's just like you need like one or two bad apples and it genuinely spoils the batch so if we actually wanted to like change some of this like you have to be asking questions that take um gender and equity seriously and in the absence of that these policies are going to fail and this is the part that like the farmer me gets so pissed off about this because like when you are in a context where you have like no resources and you've got to get it right once because you cannot afford to go back and get like more supplies or whatever. Um, you do your expletiving research. <laughs> it's like, this is like, it's a, it's a different way of saying like measure twice, cut once. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like that kind of practicality just feels completely absent. Um, and so like farmer me is like seriously dudes and then like gender scholar me is also just like it's really obvious that like you're deliberately avoiding asking the questions that you need to to not have utterly shit policy and it's wasteful in a context where we don't have like money to waste yeah like it's and that's something too that as we were talking about this and and can you know can this question get bigger and i was i was sitting there thinking of how many Uh, women who identify as conservatives that I have reached out to in order to bring them into this conversation. And so far, I've had one person who is aiming to, she's working towards and trying to get the Conservative Party of Canada to recognize more things that are going on that, that, that they need to do to, you know, think of the future. So technically she almost doesn't even count because she's not happy with the status quo. Mm-hmm. And what is coming to mind for me over these, over this conversation and just over the last few days and the number of people who aren't getting back to me or the number of people who just say, you know what, I'm, I'm out of it now. I'm not, not talking about partisan politics anymore. And I'm just thinking, they're staying out of it, not because they can't talk about it or, or because they, it's because they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to have these conversations because these conversations mean that something needs to change. Exactly. And this is, I mean, I, I it just, it just kind of clicked in here, Kathleen. We're never, we're never going to get those. We're never going to get them on. They won't have these conversations because it's, yeah. It's not a conversation they want to have. They don't, it's, it's not something they want to acknowledge. Well, that's right. Because when you recognize that something has gone awry, the next natural step is how do we fix it? How do we right the ship? And they would rather stand on the sinking ship and not do anything than tell everyone else the ship is sinking and maybe we need to fix some things up. You know, if we had um, people, women like Rana Ambrose engaging in these conversations, perhaps, you know, our government might listen. Um, but I think that part of the reason why conservative women don't, who I think would agree with many of the things we've been talking about today, don't engage in the, in the conversation at all is because they risk vilification, yeah. Well, and I've and I've yeah. heard well, I've heard oh, yeah. Ron Ambrose speak to conservatives about how they don't um, about how when she was when she was running for election, she said that she had you know maybe maybe two guys that were kind of like, yeah, but you're a woman, and she was like, yeah, well, watch me, and that was her attitude during this this conversation that she or the speech that she gave, and I just thought <laughs> I was like okay, I think there's probably more to it than that. But, but there's this glossing over in a, in a way, like I've said before, Kathleen, like I used to, I didn't notice mm-hmm. that this shouldn't actually be happening because I grew up with it. And 
But it's the result of deliberate work. So um, it is. I, I, have spent, I spent some time. Uh, so there's this book that I contributed to called The Blueprint. And it was looking at federal conservative parties in Canada from like 1993-ish through to the present. Uh, and uh, like it was looking at a number of, uh, of um, facets about the kind of like what happens when you have the OBCs and the Reform Party and like the Canadian Alliance, ultimately the merger, like what's going on with a lot of this stuff. And so for the chapter that I wrote on that, I went to the Reform Party um, Fund, which is part of the University of Calgary archive. Um, There's only one entry in it that has to deal with women. And it was an old VHS tape in like the early reform days. So I think pre-93, it appears to be chaired by Sandra Manning. Uh, And the event of the day was one of these ones where there would be somebody from the University of Calgary or some like some quote unquote expert speaker that was kind of like doing a learning session. So there was stuff about like taxes and money and like um, women's economic participation. There was stuff about like intimate partner violence. I can't remember all the other sorts of things. And so the video had um, the speakers and then the Q and A following the speakers. And then unfortunately for me, cause it would have been fascinating. Um, they, they cut the kind of small group discussion in terms of um, uh, so like th- those like kind of like foundational conversations amongst like, like people who wanted to go and like form the reform party um, from a woman's perspective, that stuff wasn't included. But uh, towards the end of the day for the last speaker, uh, there was, you got a, got a little bit of a glimpse in it. So um, it was about the, after the session on intimate partner violence, where it is really hard to ignore the empirical pattern, which is that women, uh, it's men's violence against women, like overwhelmingly uh and and in really heartbreaking ways um where like this is not to say that the reverse doesn't happen but like the proportions are so like it's like 95 5 um and that's just the stuff that's reported right which means that we know that we don't probably have an accurate handle on it and a woman in the audience stood up and said we don't want to say that there are any women's issues but like what do we do with this and the part that i keyed in on was that she's clearly reflecting bigger conversations that were held in like the foundational moments of the reform party of canada which is the we don't want to say that there are any women's issues and if you look at the way that the reform party in particular talked about social issues they really did eschew the idea that there were group rights or that there were group patterns that you would want to look at to be able to identify systemic biases it was much more like individual 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 um and so part of that so when i hear that there are individuals within structures like political parties that are saying things like you know i just don't want to talk about this or things along those lines i get it because like right from the word go right from the jump there's going to be a structural imperative to say we don't want to acknowledge that's a thing and so the first step is going to be like hey i think we should actually acknowledge that this is a thing and like but the the structure is there and the impulse is there from an instance where it's like so strong where you've got people like right from the word go saying but the patterns are here and i can see that there are I can see that there are reasons why we should care about this in like a bigger way beyond just individuals. Uh, and there's simply no space for it. And so if like the folk that you're talking to are closed-minded to these things, like to go back to you into the beginning where like, I want to like shake my colleagues for being closed-minded to this stuff. I can imagine in uh, a context where people are even more closed to it, like, it gets real frustrating. So I, I understand exactly why there would be women in conservative parties who um, maybe they even reject the, like, so like, it's a different issue if you reject the idea the that these, it, yeah. the, the premise of the, of the question, certainly, but for, for those that don't, like, um, like it, at the risk of like bringing Sandra Jansen into this, there's a reason why she crossed the floor, right? right. Like you go from a space where you can talk about it to a space like from a space where like not only can't you not talk about it but like the violence directed at you for wanting to talk about it is extreme to Mm -hmm. like actually having a context where somebody will let you voice what the problem is and the literature on violence against women in politics is really clear about this where like the thrust of the violence is directed at women to prevent them from doing political work and so if you if you see how this compounds like if part of the work that women want to do is like just even talking about this stuff like there's a reason why the violence comes right back at them 